It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And it is Car Cone Carne, sponsored today by C&H Financial Services. C&H offers a variety of products ranging from traditional merchant accounts to a zero-cost payment processing solution, which eliminates the expenses tied to accepting credit cards. C&H also offers cost-effective commercial lending programs, which can help get your business the money it needs to make it through these unprecedented times. To learn more, and you should, contact CNH Financial Services at 855-600-2437 or go to chfs.us. I'm James Van Osdell, and across the pond, we find the, the legendary, the iconic, the wonderful, the delightful Mid-York. Good morning, good afternoon, where you are. Uh, well, uh, good, whatever it is, where you it's very early morning, I think, for you. I, 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 I get nervous whenever I have to deal with time zones. I, I, I like look it up online. <laughs> yeah, I can't figure it out at all. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's interesting. People in Australia say, well, what time is that? And I'm thinking, I, I'm not quite, I don't know. It's got to be on the internet somewhere. Exactly. I, I, I'm that guy who thinks, well, maybe I should get on the uh, Zoom call about an hour early, just in case I screwed this up and he's waiting for me. But it all worked <laughs> out. I'm glad to see you. You know, I'm in Chicago. You're over in the UK right now. You came to Chicago in January. You played City Winery. That already feels like 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, it's a lifetime ago now. Um, and, you know, I've been coming to Chicago for quite a while. Uh, but the City Winery was absolutely perfect. That wonderful environment for the tour that I was doing, which was a very, a, a real honest kind of impromptu, uh, you know, evening with, uh, as I said, when I walk on stage uh, during that tour, and uh, I'd announced I knew the first song and I knew probably what I was going to play as the last song, but I had no idea what I was going to play in between. And it really was audience led. So the winery was just absolutely perfect for that environment. It was great. Well, let's talk a little bit about Chicago. It, it does seem like a very comfortable place for you to be. You recorded a live album here seven years ago. What is it about this city? I like it. It's, um, it's, it's like Glasgow, you know, my, my hometown. I, I don't live in Glasgow anymore, but my hometown where I was born and brought up is a, <clears throat> it's a, a beautiful, rough and ready city with great characters. Um, and Chicago is very much that. I mean, uh, you know, I suppose uh, we're all fed the image of Chicago because of, you know, thanks to the movies, you know, the, the, the you know, Tommy gun wielding, you know, uh, mafioso bosses. But then when you get there and you realize it's just another great city. And it's one of the cities in America that I can actually walk around. I enjoy when I travel, I enjoy going to places and getting out the car and yeah. having a walk around the streets, which you can't really do in a lot of the cities on the West Coast. Um, but you certainly can in Chicago, a lovely old city, lovely architecture. And uh, as I've said many times, you know, who can't fall in love with a city that dyes the river green on St. Patrick's Day? <laughs> it's just glorious. You know? It's true. It, to, talking about you performing, and yes, uh, this most recent tour was you know, the Q&A and everything, definitely, definitely a different approach. You still, when you tour, you still play the hits. You still play Fade to Grey. You still play Dear God, all that stuff. I've got to think, though, for the decades you've been doing this, statistically, you're always running the risk of 
letting somebody down because you're not playing their song. That's inevitable. You know, it doesn't matter what you do or how long you're on stage or how much of the spectrum of your past stuff that you do, there's always someone saying, oh, you never played that obscure B-side from the extra 12-inch mix that you did back in 1981. It's just the way it is. Humans <laughs> humans are weird and, and complex characters. Um, so it doesn't matter how much you try and cover all the bases. You never can. So, uh, you know, you have to expect that uh, possibly, you know, they might not have heard the favourite tune that they, they, they fell in love with when they were kids, um, but hopefully they'll leave at the end of the night um, having heard things that they didn't expect to hear that uh, will maybe satisfy them a little bit. That's it. So eight months after you came through to the city winery, we're all living online. You just launched the Backstage Lockdown Club. And before we get into the specifics, you said, I've spent the past three months of lockdown investing in learning how to broadcast high-quality, multi-camera, studio-based performances, capturing the intimate atmospherics a stage show would hopefully create. The pandemic has really forced us all to find ways to to pivot and, and find new ways through and around it, hasn't it? It has. And uh, I suppose if... Um, if you're kind of used to, <clears throat> you know, uh, being malleable, uh, being flexible uh, and having to adapt uh, to what uh, circumstances around you dictate that you have to adapt to, then it's no great hardship. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've since, let me think now, 1982 or 83, um, I built my own studio, built my first studio. Uh, because I saw that that was the future. I saw that, you know, eventually I wouldn't have to go to a record label um, or I wouldn't be on a record label. You know, someone somewhere would look at uh, their, 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 um, their calculations uh, at the end of the year and say, well, this one doesn't make any sense anymore. It's costing us more to have them than, than not. Uh, and uh, with your own studio uh, back then, I mean, it's a major investment. Uh, not just financial, but a massive learning curve uh, to to learn how to operate something like this. To me, I saw that as the ultimate investment because with something like that and the knowledge uh, to operate it and still be able to create, uh, I didn't really need a label. So the idea that yeah, um, I've been in lockdown like everyone else. You know, I managed to get back from uh, from uh, Australia uh, back in early March. Uh, managed to get the family all uh, back from various parts of the world around me and uh, carried on working in my studio, you know, creating new material. And then I thought, well, hold on a second. It's not that far a technological leap into the uh, the world of, uh, of broadcast. So I figured out how to do it. And I've got my three camera system and my little digital uh, audio visual mixing thing and, you know, just learned how it worked. It's, a, it's an extension of what I've done uh, over the years, you know, from jumping from guitar to learning synthesizers and, and programming. So it's, it's not a great big thing for me. I got a comment uh, from the Facebook Live we're doing right now from Scott. He says, good morning, Midge. Good afternoon. The first live in studio was great. Can't wait until this Saturday for the next. Ah, so, good man. Member of the Backstage Lockdown Club checking in. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, I love this. I love the fact that yeah, I did my first one uh, a week ago on Saturday, uh, and um, I had people from all over the world. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very odd having them all in my little environment here, my little studio. 
so had people from Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, and and uh, Canada and America. And uh, I think that's that's fabulous um, that that people can connect the the way they have. I've been using uh, a song of mine, you know, "Are We Connected?" Uh, as a kind of theme for the entire backstage lockdown uh, scenario, and that's exactly what it is. It's a connection. It's a way of of keeping people um, attached, uh, you know, musically and personally. Uh, and I find that. I find it quite an, an interesting process, you know, doing my first uh, broadcast in, in true technological style. Everything broke down five minutes before to go on air. Um, and I'm kind of used to that as well, you know, having toured many years with Ultravox with machines that wouldn't communicate with each other. That had to be adapted in order for us to be able to play live. Um, so I'm kind of used to that. But I, I love the fact that the moment I went live, I had no idea what was going to play. And I was kind of dictated by the questions people were asking. It's, it's in a way, the, the kind of ultimate uh, solution for uh, the situation we all find ourselves in. It's got, it may be months, it may be years before we're all allowed, and I hope it's not, but before we're all allowed to be in the same room or the same field, you know, watching and playing and, you know, enjoying music. So this is, this is quite a good alternative. Absolutely. Talking about having your own studio, creating your own path. It seems that the industry today, and you've seen every aspect of the music industry, it seems that the industry to, industry today really favors an entrepreneurial spirit. And it seems like lots of opportunity for people who are willing to kind of go that non-traditional, actually more traditional route now of finding their own way, getting their own stuff out there, not waiting for an A&R person to hunt them down. It, it's empowering this time. It is empowering, and it, and it's kind of been that way since the the advent of the internet. You know, when when we realised that <clears throat> we didn't have to be locked down to one particular place. You know, I you know I I always thought living, you know, moving from Glasgow and living in London, uh, which was the kind of epicentre of the music industry uh, back in the eighties, that was uh, that was something that had to be done. And then you realise, well, hold on, well, I don't go to clubs, and I don't I don't need that kind of uh, feed from what's currently cool to do what I do. What I do is created from my, my head and my heart. So I can do that from anywhere, but technologically I couldn't. Um, so with the internet, yes, I can, you know, I could do interviews. I could do exactly this, uh, you know, talking to you, you know, 4,000 miles apart or whatever we are. Um, and, and it made everything so much easier. Uh, what I suppose if there's a downside, it means that, everyone's got access to the tools now. You know, mm -hmm. you have a laptop and the right software, you can learn how to make a record. It doesn't necessarily mean the record's going to be any good and the airwaves may be, you know, filled with kind of bits of mediocrity um, that would normally have been filtered out during the old system. But the fact that it's a level playing field for everyone now, I think is a brilliant scenario. You know, anyone can have a crack at this. Anyone can have a go at it. Uh, you know, make a video. It's you know your your laptop now becomes your recording studio, your video studio, your photographic uh, editing suite, uh, your communications, your entertainment system. You know, it's 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 absolutely imperative that you do embrace this technology. Otherwise, the idea of an A and R guy, if they still exist, you know, an artist repertoire guy coming and knocking on your door or turning up at a club that you're playing in saying, hey, young man, I've got a contract for you. Well, let's, let's sign you up. It's highly remote. 
that that's ever going to happen again. For sure. So the specifics of the Backstage Lockdown Club, uh, wh- what are you doing? It, it, the performances, is, is it kind of like the City Winery thing where you're doing Q&A? And- it's exactly like the City Winery thing, except I don't have to drag my sorry backside halfway around the world to do it. And, and neither does anyone else. Um, so it's kind of like that. It won't always be Q&As. Um, I think sometimes it'll be, uh, you know, I may do, you know, songwriting, specific songwriting uh, scenarios where I can talk to you know, fellow songwriters and, and discuss the, the process of how it works. Um, it could be Q&As, it could be doing uh, a, an entire event of you know, cover versions of other people's songs. I, I do quite a few of those and I have done over the years. Um, and I find that quite interesting and quite challenging. So I think it's just this absolute connection. And, 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 and for, for, you know, on a monthly basis, when people subscribe to it um you know i throw in i'll be throwing in you know live versions of songs that they've maybe never heard before or remixes that are only available uh through the club uh and it also is going to give people when we eventually get back out there and are allowed to go out and uh, and make make lots of noise um there'll be a bit uh, the, the the access to early ticket sales uh, for those events will be via the club so there are quite a few things and we're, we're, we're adding to it as we go along the more the more I discuss it and the more I think about it there's more things that I can actually put in there uh, sure. to enhance it so how do people find it or how do people sign up how do they become club members well um, that's that's the the technology's been amazing to plow through to to figure out I've never watched so many YouTube videos of you know young guys with the hats on backwards you know talking about how the technology works but you know you can teach old dogs new tricks uh, as I've just learned so there's a there's a thing called patreon uh, up there which is a, a, a system that enables you to um, to access this so it's it's quite simple it's www.patreon.com forward slash midure and it takes you straight there where you can you can sign up um, and uh, and I said we'll just we'll, in fact we've just chosen a date to do for me a 10 a.m uh, a very early morning uh, event uh, in order for our Australian and New Zealand and Japanese friends uh, to be able to watch this at a decent time. So the time zone thing is, is an absolute minefield. It so is. No idea, no idea what my croaky voice might be like at 10 o'clock in the morning, but you know, maybe it'll be a more Q&A type thing than a performance type thing. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. So it's that, and, and you just go for the ride, and if you don't want to be part of it anymore, you drop out after a month. Um, so it's not some kind of long-term fixture that I'm tying you into. You know, who knows, maybe in, maybe in a couple of months I'll be tired doing it and don't want to do it anymore. But for now, I'm absolutely loving the whole, it's an exciting process for me. Yeah, it's, it's new. It's different. It's a new approach to what you've been doing. I, I think it's super cool. I want to ask you about a song you wrote maybe six years ago, a song called I Survived. Was that, a, a, just to isolate one song from your entire career, was that you taking stock of your career? Was that you kind of, I, I've always wondered, wondering what your what your place was in the modern day? I was just curious about that specific song. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit older than that. Um, I, I, um, <clears throat> it's been well documented in the past. I, I had my run-in with alcohol, like a, a lot of people do. It's a very insidious thing. It was great fun being out touring and, and uh, you know, getting off your face and having lots of laughs when you're young, and then you find out that it's not funny anymore when you realise that you can't stop. 
So it was well documented that um, I, I had problems in that area. Uh, so 15, 16, 17 years ago, I, I started writing that song. When I, re when I thought that I couldn't write songs without my, my good friend Jack Daniels with me, and uh, I, because it's, it's, I remember the Beatles talking about drugs and saying, well, maybe I won't be able to write a good song without LSD or without dope or, or whatever. And of course it wasn't true. You know, you, you come out the other end of it and, and it comes back. And when I wrote I Survived, it was about that. Um, it was that specific thing. I survived the, the, one of the major downfalls of being in the entertainment industry, albeit self-induced. Um, so it was more about that rather than surviving in uh, in the, uh, the current world, uh, the current musical uh, world, uh, or the the world of relevance. You know, are you still relevant? Is there still a place for you to do that? That kind of thought process is with every artist, and I don't sure. care how much they deny it. We we are fragile characters, and we we live and die on our last uh, successes. Um, and if you have enough non-successes, you start to doubt your ability, uh, even though you shouldn't. You know, you know, uh, you know I, I remember David Bowie saying that um, if you are complacent and you're happy with where you are at this moment in time, you're not moving fast enough. You should be in an uncomfortable place. Uh, and sometimes that's where your best work comes from. Speaking of Bowie, so many of us love your version of, <coughs> version of Man Who Sold the World. And you've done Lady Stardust. I mean, I know you're you're a fan, and he was a colleague. Was Bowie the Rosetta Stone for so much of what came afterward? Was 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 he Ground Zero? I think he still probably is Ground Zero. And a lot of a lot of artists, and I know I do this when I'm writing something, uh, even subliminally, uh, it'll cross your mind. You know, would would he have done something like this? Would would this be palatable? To someone like him, although he probably, you know, probably never really knew a lot of my music, um, it's still a benchmark, you know, the quality and the standard, uh, and the constant striving to come up with something interesting, rather than just uh, resting on your laurels. So yeah, I think for a lot of artists in all genres of music, uh, we all owe a, a nod of thanks and respect to to David Bowie, because he paved the way. You know, he, he said it's fine to be out there. It's fine not to have commercial success because a lot of these ventures weren't commercially successful. Um, so you can't... And things change. Once you've had a, a commercially successful piece of work, your mind changes and all the people around you want more of that success. And you start to think differently. All of a sudden, you have a parameter, you have a little box that you work within well, that box yeah. didn't exist when you created the, the interesting piece of music. So you have to keep reminding yourself that that box is invisible and it's only in your head um, and you could ignore everyone else. And he was a master at that. Bowie, of course, part of Live Aid. And I, I can't let you leave the conversation without talking about Band-Aid and Live Aid. You see, Midge, back in the 1980s, kindness and the desire to take care of all humankind was something we all thought about. You were there. You were front and center for Band-Aid Live Aid. Was social consciousness something that was in your blood growing up? Oh, I'd love to say yes. Um, I don't think I did or got involved any more than any other person on the planet. You know, as I've said many times, uh, my contribution to charity would be you buy the flag or you buy the pin or you put the money in the box and you put the sticker on your jacket. That's That was it. Um, so... 
getting involved in charity work was never really on the cards that I knew of. I think it was maybe too self-centered, like most people are. And um, certainly most artists are. Uh, and then I find myself embroiled in, in this thing, uh, albeit at the time it was going to be a six-month project, and you know <laughs> I'm still I'm still there doing it. Uh, once you once you dip your toe in that water and you you experience things for yourself, you see the world in a very different place. Um, and, and I think you know Band Aid and Live Aid and you know, We Are The World and, and Northern Lights and all of those things that happened in and around that period, it helped redesign the face of charity, you know, prior to us young guns getting involved in it. Uh, charity was always perceived as someone old's position, mm -hmm. someone old got involved in charity. And it was nothing to do with, you know, young, young cool dudes. Um, and, of course, that all changed when we saw our heroes and uh, you know our mentors getting on stage or standing around a microphone singing a song um, to help other people uh, and that, that has forever changed uh, now that's that's uh, the new dynamic that's the new vision uh, it's in you know, Band Aid and Live Aid's in history books now uh, which is a weird thing to say when you're still breathing but it is uh, because it was so important um, so yeah I didn't see it coming it wasn't something that was always it was. It certainly was dormant within me, possibly, uh, but it didn't come to the fore until, uh, you know, I spoke to Bob. It seems like you and Bob, Bob Geldof, uh, were both kind of self-deprecating about your expectations for what would happen with the Band-Aid sessions. What were your, were your expectations low? Like, well, maybe they'll come, maybe they'll do it, maybe this will work out. Well, my expectations were low because it was Bob, really. <laughs> He, you know, when he, when, when he came over and, and played me the bones of what he had and I played him the bones of what I had, um, I, I realised that this wasn't a very good song. Uh, so we really needed uh, as much bolstering as possible. And that came from the stature of the artists involved. So the artists involved um, turning it into the uh, media three-ring circus that it became uh, was imperative to the success of this thing. You know, had it been just Bob or I singing the song, I don't think it would have seen the light of day. Um, so being self-deprecating, yes, I think I think you've got to be self-deprecating in this ridiculous industry that we, we find ourselves in. We started believing the good stuff or the bad stuff that people write about you. You'd never do anything. So, um, so yeah, self-deprecation is, is part of it all. But I think the the moment we realised that we had the lineup we had, you know, you know, Boy George and George Michael and Phil Collins and you know Bono and all of that stuff, we realised we had something special. Uh, so it would have been almost impossible not to have a commercial success with it. But to to see what it did afterwards uh, and how much it's resonated with people and the fact that it's still out there, that song is played every you know every holidays, every Christmas. Um, you know, that's quite amazing. We never saw that at all. I, I still remember going to the record store when it came out to buy the seven inch. Your goodwill was dormant in you until that came out. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. You, you talked about this, but you know, when I was a kid here in America, it was the Jerry Lewis telethon. That was my knowledge of what charity and giving was, you know, something you see on 
uh, network television and you know, the grandparents watched. And I was saying this before we started recording, but Live Aid was this wonderful shared experience. And I, I don't know if it could be had in the present day with the internet. This was something you all had to watch MTV. There was one source for it. And we all spent whatever it was, 12 hours that, that Saturday watching it. it. It really was this wonderful communal thing, pre-internet. And it, we were, instead of texting each other, we were calling each other like, oh my God, there, Zeppelin's playing Stairway to Heaven or Phil Collins did it. He crossed, he crossed the ocean. He's, he's at RFK or whatever. It, it really was a new perspective on everything. And it makes sense that you're still talking about it. Well, it, 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 because it's, as I said, it's history. It was, a, it was one of the, the major blips on the horizon, uh, you know, just like Woodstock was in, in its day. Uh, you know, Live Aid certainly was in its day. Um, it, the global jukebox, uh, hence being termed that. It was something that connected the planet. Um, and technologically, it was a nightmare. Uh, you know, when you, <laughs> television companies talking about satellite link-ups and, you know, you know we were saying earlier, it's very difficult for me to even figure out, you know, time zones, let alone, you know, delays on satellites and things and, and satellite feeds. So it was kind of groundbreaking in many, many different ways. But in a, it, 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 was, it was often copied, but seldom bettered. And that's not saying that Live Aid was better than any other uh, global events that are massive events that have been on. It's that Beatles thing. It's, you know, when people say, oh, wouldn't it be... Wouldn't it be great to be able to see the Beatles play now, you know, if they were all alive, and they were all there. See, you know what, it probably wouldn't, because it wouldn't live up to your expectations. Right. So through rose-tinted glasses, we can look back at Live Aid and go, it was just brilliant. It was brilliant, absolutely, at the time. Um, but I think it's, it lives bigger and bolder in our hearts than, than uh, in its reality. When you talk, when people talk about Live Aid, inevitably they talk about the Queen performance. And I'm trying to remember watching it for my first time as a kid. I remember thinking it was really cool. Was the Queen performance always thought of as iconic from, from the word go, or did the stature of that performance grow through the years? I, I truly can't remember. I know there were two outstanding performances on the day. I mean, there were a lot of very, very good stuff, but, but to try and peak above the high bar that had already been set by all the artists who appeared um, was a major feat. And the two were, of course, Queen, who took their 18 minutes that they were allocated. Everyone had 18 minutes. There was a, a traffic light system as you walked on stage and nobody knew about it until you are about to step up and do your performance. And you were told that uh, as you walk on, the lights will be green. At 16 minutes, they go amber and you won't see them turn red because that means the power goes off. <laughs> and, and, and that kept everyone in time. I bet. So Queen had done a, an 18-minute kind of segue you know, of greatest hits. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a way of reminding people just what a powerhouse they were. Um, Queen had been through many highs and lows uh, sure. in the career up to that point. And were taking the stage as just another band and left the stage being the band that they actually had to remind people that they actually were. But also, you too yeah. uh, took the stage and didn't do an 18-minute segue thing. They lost one of the songs because they got lost in the moment and got the girl up dancing and proved that they were the band they were about to become. Yep. So those two things uh, on the day were absolute highlights. 
Yeah, I remember Bono jumping jumping off stage. That, that was legend. Yeah, and, and he managed to get back on, which he might not be able to do these days. <laughs> well, what was it like as the organizer playing with Ultravox? Was it like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to do it, or I don't have time for this? Oh, listen, I didn't organize anything. It's, uh, you know, you look at something like that and, and you know, the, the guy behind the microphone or whatever gets the claim, but it's the myriad of people behind them that made, made it work. Uh, so, yeah, just, I think for us it was petrifying because, uh, you know, Ultravox at the time, as I said, we were using fairly basic equipment. It was pre-MIDI, which is the system that allows machines to talk to each other. Um, so everything we had... We had to have two of because they had to be adapted and to, in order to play live. Um, Ultravox uh, took five hours to do a sound check, and there was no sound check at Live Aid. So we walked on having chosen four of the the songs that used the least technology um, that we could perform. I mean, we had to do Vienna. That was just uh, yep. a, a given. So walking on there was absolutely petrifying. Not because of the crowd. That was petrifying enough petrifying walking on there and expecting to go and nothing you know so uh, you know it's just too embarrassing to even contemplate so um so i think the first 10 15 minutes went by in a nanosecond i bet um, you know but i still have highlights in my head you know people clapping the 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 vienna drum rhythm uh, you know, uh, which was just uh, excellent it was wonderful and the rest of it is just a, a blur I bet. All right. So, Midge, the Backstage Lockdown Club, it is available on Patreon. People can sign up. They can really get into your inner sanctum. They can talk to you and, and share this experience and the songwriting, the performances. Really cool. And I think we talked about this earlier earlier today, the ability to be malleable and flexible and find your find a new way as an artist to bully through the pandemic. You did it. I think this is super cool. And I, I think it's really cool that you, uh, you came on to talk today. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure.